Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. And in this podcast, you'll hear from a diverse representation within our community. We want you to be both informed and inspired by their stories and experiences. And we're so glad that you've joined us today. As we begin today, I want to welcome our co-host, as usual, Dan Lanahan. Dan, uh, Dr. Lanahan has been serving as a medical consultant this year for ICOS. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much, Steve. As always, it's great to talk about cardio-oncology topics. And Dr. Arjun Ghosh. Uh, Arjun is consultant cardiologist at UCLH and Bart's Heart Center in London. Uh, welcome, Arjun. Uh, Thanks so much, Steve. Really looking forward to this exciting episode on the guidelines. Well, certainly one of the most anticipated and now celebrated recent events in the world of cardio-oncology has been the publication of the new ESC guidelines in cardio-oncology. And as a society, we're really proud to be included as a collaborating partner on this. And that's due in large measure to the fact that the two lead Chairpersons on this project are both members of our board of directors, Dr. Alexander Lyon and Dr. Teresa Lopez Fernandez. And we're delighted to have Teresa with us today so we can discuss uh, a little bit about this monumental achievement. So, welcome, Teresa. Thank you very much, Steve. It's always a great pleasure to be here with you. Well, first, I think we would all want to say congratulations on really this remarkable piece of work. Uh, 50 recommendations, each with its own table, 13 additional tables, 48 figures, 133 pages. It is a monumental piece of work. So congratulations for that. And Thank you very much. It seems that we have a lot of things to read. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, we need to decide which one goes first. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we won't well, get to all that today, but we'll get some brief background and overview now. And I would also just, you know, encourage people that when they do read something, don't, don't try to take the whole thing at once. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's like I have said, and I'm sure somebody else important has said, you know, don't eat the whole cake, just take a piece, you know, eat a piece, enjoy that piece. And then, you know, the next day or whenever you can get to it again, uh, you know, take another bite. But the 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 guidelines are really a monumental achievement, and the quality and the detail is truly astounding. Yeah, and it's obviously meant to be a reference work that people go back to repeatedly, hopefully in their daily practice. Um, before we get into any details about the guidelines. Teresa, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about sort of the background, the context for how this project came about. Um, how how did this um, originate? Who was involved in, in the organizing and writing of these guidelines? How long did it take? Just give us some background information about this work. Yeah, thank you, Steve. I think that this is a very interesting question. In fact, we, we start to think about creating ESC guidelines on cardio-oncology in 2019. And it was a proposal of the ESC Council of Cardio-Oncology to the uh, Guidelines Committee of the, of the ESC. And uh, finally, 
in uh, 2020, we get the, the approval to, to move forward with uh, this project. So in fact, the, the project started in March 2020. And at that time, uh, Alex and I, we were invited to, to chair this, to co-chair this, uh, this project. And uh, we started the, the first administrative process to, to engage uh, co-authors and also to um, present the project to other societies. Uh, because from the beginning, we want to create a collaborative work uh, between the ESC community and all uh, international uh, oncology and hematology societies, and of course, the International Cardiac Oncology Society, to, to create uh, one document that covers all the needs uh, that uh, we as professionals we have when we need to take care of patients with cancer and maybe cancer and cardiovascular diseases. So... It's been a, a long process, and uh, I'm sure that uh, Dan can jump in this uh, process because he is part of the of the task force member. But um, we had the first uh, meeting with all the people who are going to contribute to the guidelines in September 2020. So uh, the the presentation of the guidelines uh, was done in August this year 2022. So we spent two years to to review the literature, to um, select uh, the, the key pieces of the literature that uh, really uh, make uh, um, different our clinical practice and help us to, to make appropriate treatment choices. And uh, then once we, we, we had the, the main text, we, we have started to create a recommendation and then to work on how to present all these recommendations and figures and tables to, to try to improve reading and to facilitate the, to, to follow these recommendations in, in daily practice. And what about the, who are the authors? Did you, did you get representatives? I know you did get representatives from around the world, but how were, how are the, um, various authors chosen. Well, we we select authors based on their expertise in different areas of uh, cardio oncology, and uh, there is a strict process to to select authors from the guidelines because it's not just the proposal of uh, the ESC Council in, in this case and uh, Alex and I as chairs, but uh, the. ESC a clinical practice guideline committee needs to, to approve the, all the authors based on their expertise, their curriculum, their potential conflict of interest with the industry. And, uh, of course, from the beginning, uh, we, um, we decided that we need medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, hematologists, and, um, different Cardiologists with different expertise in heart failure, in vascular diseases, in cardiac imaging. We also have a, a pharmacist to help us with all the drug-drug interaction. And uh, uh, all the ESC guidelines also includes patients uh, as task force members. Because, of course, the guidelines are, um, are organized or, or created for professionals. But... Um, uh, the, the aim is, is to help uh, the patient care, and it's very, very important to also have the point of view of the patients on how they 
can interpret or how they can feel in uh, some specific uh, situations. So it, it took from, from March 2020 to September 2020 to, to really confirm the, the, the task for members that are going to be part of uh, this project and of course it's also very very important to have a representative for different uh, areas uh, around the world because uh, cardiology is a new service speciality and uh, we need to be sure that uh, guidelines represent of course the best clinical practice but uh, also uh, the way uh, we can implement them in, in our daily practice. If you or your institution would like to have credentials that confirm your qualifications as a cardio-oncologist or a cardio-oncology center of excellence, we encourage you to consider applying for our certification exam in cardio-oncology or our certification for centers of excellence. These are the only certifications currently available in this field, and it's a special opportunity for you or your institution to distinguish yourself recognizing your expertise in the field. More information about both these opportunities can be found at ic-os.org, or you can email directoricos at gmail.com for more information. Well, that, I mean, that's incredible. It's actually surprising to me that it only took you two years with that kind of representation with those that many different stakeholders involved. That is incredible, but, but what a great, um, help to making the quality um, what it is in these in these recommendations, and you all ended up with I believe fifty recommendations. Can you just comment on the different classes of recommendations and the evidence base for them? I know this is a question that comes up frequently with these guidelines. Yeah, this is also very important. Um, as you know, there is um, some rules uh, from the ESC. To, on how to, to create recommendations. So first, uh, I, I want to explain to you that uh, each recommendation that uh, is uh, in, included in the guidelines uh, needs to be approved by uh, at least 75% of the task force members. And if not, uh, this recommendation, we need to uh, rewrite the recommendation or to change the class of recommendation or the level of evidence. So guidelines include three types of recommendation classes. Class one that represents a general agreement on what is beneficial, useful, effective for patients. So class one is are include things that are recommended or indicated. Class two is divided into A and to B. So um, class two A um includes uh, a recommendation where the weight of evidence or opinion is in favor of the usefulness or the efficacy. So it should be considered to do one procedure or to use one drug or to organize uh, the monitoring in one way. And class to be, in class to be, the usefulness or efficacy in general is less well established by evidence or by the opinion. And um, class three recommendations are those uh, um, those procedures or treatments uh, or um, nutrients that are not recommended, so are contraindicated. 
and um, we need to, to to decide based on the on the review of the literature the the type of uh, recommendation class we want to assign to a um, specific statement, and then to level this recommendation according to the level of evidence. So level of evidence A, which is the best level of evidence, uh, we need data derived from multiple randomized clinical trials or meta-analysis. Level of evidence B, uh, data derived from single randomized clinical trials or large non-randomized clinical uh, studies or registry. And level of evidence C is based on the consensus of uh, experts or sometimes in small studies. So uh, this is how all the ESC uh, guidelines are, are created. And uh, I think that another important uh, thing to, to, to comment is that uh, Guidelines are not just based on the writing process or the work of the task force members, because uh, um, we uh, organize three different review rounds, and uh, we include in this uh, review round more than 100 reviewers that uh, send us their comments or how to improve uh, the, the reading or how to improve specific recommendations and also bring us a new evidence in the literature that maybe we, we miss in, in the first uh, search. So it's, uh, it's, it's very, very important to, to also consider the work of all the reviewers because they, they improve a lot. It's not just 30 task force members, but 30 task force members plus more than 100 reviewers. So even a level of evidence C recommendation are really strong in the sense that reflect what experts think that we are the best clinical practice, even though it sometimes is not reflected in a specific clinical trials or meta-analysis. So the, uh, you know, that was really a, a beautiful description of what is an astoundingly complex process so you know to take you know if you if you just imagine some data set that you you developed yourself you know you did it at your own site and you you verified all the accuracy of it etc and then you go through the process of getting it published what uh you know, other than the four or five or 10 people that you're working with directly at your institution and, you know, they review it and everybody agrees that this is what it shows, et cetera. When you submit it to be uh, published, on average, it probably gets reviewed by two, maybe up to four different people. And, you know, they provide their input. And if you can answer that information, those questions, adequately, then, you know, ultimately your paper will be published. So that's how data kind of goes through the process in general. And what you just described is something far bigger than that in terms of, you know, there's there's 30 some odd authors, there's 100 and some odd reviewers, and they go through three different review processes. So, I mean, this is as curated data and text as as uh, at least that I have uh, that I'm familiar with. I'm sure some of the other major guidelines, like you know, treatment of myocardial infarction or heart failure or something like that, 
you know, they may go through a similar process, but just from, from my own personal exposure and your description of this, it's really pretty amazing how, how much, how much work was actually done. Yeah, that is really remarkable. And I wonder, and, uh, you know, any of you can jump in on this question, but I wonder if in this process you were, you know, maybe not surprised by where the best evidence is, but were were you surprised by gaps in evidence um, that came out as as y'all reviewed all this data? Yeah, this is this is true, and in fact, there is a specific chapter on the guidelines that try to list the gaps in evidence. And I think that it's very very important to to focus on on these gaps because it's the only way to improve our knowledge to to really focus on creating evidence to cover these these gaps. Uh, I think that probably one of the big uh, challenges we have uh, is um, how to organize uh, long-term cancer survivorship programs because uh, improvement in, in cancer uh, treatment and early cancer diagnosis, uh, these, these are, of course, good news, but uh, we face a huge population of cancer survivors not all with the same cardiovascular toxicity risk, not all treated with the same drugs and with their own uh, cardiovascular characteristic, uh, even before cancer uh, treatment. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's really complex to organize this uh, follow-up in, in an evidence-based uh, way I'm not sure what uh, Dan uh, uh, think about that, but probably it's, it's not easy to, to have a close monitoring of patients during uh, cancer treatment, but um, we hopefully spend a few months on, on this process, and uh, at that time, the patients are at hospital, so are in a very let's see, a um, controlled uh, environment. But uh, when the cancer treatment finishes, even though if they have a continuous follow-up by their oncologist, um, they are not uh, based at hospital. And it's, it's more complex to, to really organize this process, of, at least the speed. <laughs> So Arjun, I was wondering what you thought about these things. You know, you you just heard a summary of the process, and then the the you know the at the beginning we talked about the the length and the content, uh, you know, in general about these guidelines. But you know, what do you what do you think the purpose of them is? I'm just curious, you know, what your view as a as somebody who's worked in this area and also. Uh, who's worked on these types of guidelines, you know, what do you, why do we do all this? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good, a really good question. I mean, I think that I have to say as somebody not being you know, directly involved in, in these guidelines, whether as an outsider in that, you know, from that viewpoint, I think they serve a very important purpose in identifying to non-cardio-oncologists that the field has come to such a point that we can have some evidence base to say that this is why we're doing the things that we do. And also, as Teresa mentioned, identifying, um, you know, these are the gaps and this is where we need the field to go. 
And, you know, one thing I was struck by um, when I was at the ESC, when the guidelines were, it were presented, was a lot of colleagues of mine who are non-cardio-oncologists, you know, they were interventional cardiologists, they were EP cardiologists, you know, they were coming with me to the different cardio-oncology sessions. And I was, you know, I was asking them, are you sure you're coming to the right session? And they were like, yes, I need to learn about this. So I think that's a really, you know, big testament to the work that uh, Teresa, Alex, and uh, everyone on the committee has done to produce something that really has grabbed the attention of all cardiologists. And I suppose, you know, the next step is to grab the attention of, you know, hemato-oncologists and oncologists. And, you know, that, that's the next step. Yeah, so Teresa, what is your perspective on that? How do we... How do we get the hematology and oncology worlds to to engage? Yeah, this is not uh, easy in, in in some places, but I think that uh, is is very very important. In fact, uh, one of the first chapter of the guidelines was uh, uh, focused on the, the baseline risk assessment of cardiovascular toxicity and. Uh, this uh, initial risk assessment to identify those patients who are going to benefit to be referred to a cardio-oncologist service is, is a task uh, from the oncologist and the hematologist. So we necessarily need to have them on board to, to be able to, to select which patients we, we need to, to follow in a specialized cardio-oncology clinic. So I think that the fact that uh, the International Cardio-Oncology Society, the European Hematology Association, and uh, the European Society of uh, Radiation Oncology are a part of uh, this project is extremely important. And uh, I know that all these societies are going to, to, to increase the, the, the promotion or to, to organize the promotion of, of these guidelines. At least in, in, in Spain, we have started to, to work with the Spanish uh, medical oncologists and hematologists, and uh, we plan to have a different uh, session and, and organizing um, meetings with uh, residents and uh, young fellows in order to, to explain the guidelines and to explain the, the critical role of the oncologists and hematologists to, to help uh, the cardiovascular health of these patients. Yeah, so Arjun, how do you think it could be, uh, you know, how long do you think the, the guidelines will, will take to sort of get into practice uh, in the UK, for example? Yeah, so I think com coming back to just what, you know, Teresa said and what, what you've been saying, I think, you know, the guidelines have not even been around for a month. It's been less than a month, but already I can say, you know, I've had two meetings with um, different people. One was with pediatric oncologists looking at late effects, and the other one was with a group of, um, you know, breast oncologists talking about dextrazoxane. And two separate meetings in the last three weeks, and at both times I referenced the guidelines that they were unaware of. But now, you know, two different groups of oncologists in, in our hospital are aware of the guidelines, and they were like, yeah, so... This is there. This is in the literature. We need to have a look and maybe we should implement this in clinical practice. So I think that in the same way, um, you know, as as cardio oncologists and there's, say, cardiologists who um, are involved in, in looking at the guidelines and 
practicing the guidelines, it's really, you know, the onus is on us to try and just make this part of normal practice. And I know that, you know, um, there was a fellow of mine who, you know, is, is in Madrid actually and was with us for, for some months um, earlier this year. He, he sent me a picture of the first day he was back at work with the guidelines open on his desk in clinic. And so I think we, we just need to just make this part of our daily practice as cardiologists and cardio-oncologists. And then in the same way, in all conversations with oncologists, just you know, reference the guidelines, alert them to this document. And hopefully that will just become you know, routine for everyone. And Teresa, along those lines, are there are is the team producing any related resources uh, like summary tools or patient resources, things that are coming off the guidelines uh, yet to be uh, published? Yeah, this is also a, a very a very interesting uh, question. Uh, in fact, we create a, a pocket guideline version that includes uh, the main recommendation tables and also the key figures that are more useful for daily practice. And um, these uh, pocket guidelines, you well, all the people can download from the ESC uh, website and also. They, they can ask the ESC for a print version to, to have uh, with them in, in clinic. Uh, there is a PowerPoint slide set with all the figures and tables of recommendation to facilitate uh, that uh, professional that want to present uh, the guidelines uh, in their uh, talks uh, can uh, use uh, these, uh, these slides. And um, um, we are working on the on the patient version of, of the guidelines. In general, uh, the ESC do not recommend to publish at the same time the professional version and uh, the patient version. So to 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 have uh, some time to to present the guidelines for the professional before uh, to present them to to the patient. And uh, we hope that this. Uh, a version for patient could be available before Christmas this year. So um, maybe uh, this is a, a very important topic that we, we need to, to comment when it was published because the ESC authorized uh, the different sister societies mm -hmm. to translate uh, these guidelines uh, for patient in different languages. And I think that this, uh, this is very, very important to, to engage patients in uh, cardiovascular care. Yeah, definitely. If you have a patient who is interested in their care and they come even with just a single page that says, you know, somebody, somebody at another institution did this, you know, what do you think about that? It, at a minimum, it makes you uh, consider alternative options and then hopefully you'll you'll investigate, you know, whatever data made that recommendation. So, so I think that in this way, the patients would, would help to progress the, the, the knowledge into, into practice better. So I think it's a fantastic idea and uh, I'm sure it will be very successful. Um, so I think that to me, that's kind of the biggest, the biggest question, you know, the, you could say two years ago, the biggest question was, is could you do this? You know, could you actually get this done? And, uh, 
you guys did it. So that's absolutely fantastic. And I know you and Alex and all the people on your committee worked really hard and had lots of meetings and lots of emails and files and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a true monumental achievement. And uh, we're so thankful that you you were willing to take that on. But uh, I think the next biggest thing is, so now that you've done it, <laughs> Now what do we do with it? You know, how do we how do we yeah. uh how do we get it into into the world, into the practice, into people's mindset or their decision making? That's that's the real frontier at this point. So I think, you know, we couldn't have that conversation if you hadn't done it. So so kudos that it's been done. But now we got to figure out how do we get it into reality and not just a beautiful, detailed document. No, definitely. In fact, I think that uh, uh, the, the challenge to, to implement the guidelines in clinical practice is uh, even harder than the, 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 the fact that uh, have the, the document uh, published. Maybe uh, another uh, initiative that uh, is going to be published in, in a few weeks uh, uh, can help to implement the guidelines because uh, the ESC the creates a quality indicator um, program based on all the guidelines that the ESC published. And um, these quality indicators try to really simplify things, uh, focusing on the key aspect uh, uh, of the to, to implement the, the guidelines successfully. So they, uh, the, the document lists uh, a few quality indicators which are really simple to, to follow, but uh, uh, represent a step forward in, in the cardiovascular care of, of patients with, uh, with cancer. So as, as you mentioned before, that is impossible to implement all the guidelines recommendations at the same time. In the same way, it's impossible to read the guidelines in one afternoon and uh, to be able to, to understand uh, all, all the things. But uh, uh, if we start by stratifying the cardiovascular toxicity risk of patients, maybe this is the first step. And if we focus on that, the, the rest of the monitoring process and the management of cardiovascular diseases will be easier than if we start to focus on how many echoes I need to perform every X months to a huge number of patients. Yeah, I think that's really important. I'd sort of like to hear what Arjun has to say about this, but if we think about, for example, the heart failure guidelines, which the I think the first version came out like in 1995 and then uh, this is at least in the ACC AHA guidelines. So I don't know about the ESC guidelines, but for heart failure. Uh, so anyway, they came out in 95 first and then uh, they kind of had a major update in 2001. And then about every five years or so, they, they have another update and, and they don't really rehash the whole stuff that made up the first one or two guidelines, but they, uh, you know, pick it up where where they left off and and build on that. And you know, those are those are very important updates because you know they're re they're really reviewing data that 
you know, has come out since the the original guideline was published. So, you know, playing that forward to this guideline. So whatever moment in time, you know, we're at this moment right now where we have a guideline. And then hopefully all of our colleagues around the world are thinking about, you know, is this the right thing? You know, is this decision the best decision? Or, you know, is some other decision, you know, having outcomes? And, you know, hopefully, you know, they will be active in the research that informs our guidelines in the future. And so more than anything, I would say one of the things to do is to remind our colleagues that, you know, we are we are paying attention. We want to know what they're up to and we want to ultimately have the right data, the right uh, summary comments, the right uh, you know, the right uh, tables to be helpful. Uh, but it also means that people who are in this space need to contribute. And uh, so Arjun, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think that that's completely correct. And I think it, it does make a difference because you need a starting point to build upon. And I completely agree with uh, what you said, Dan, that, you know, new guidelines are usually kind of iterations on, on previous versions. And that's how it should be, because, you know, hopefully our science is um, you know, improving, but not that we've been doing incorrect things in the past. It's just building on and kind of refining things. And you know, the, the guidelines that we, we brought out in in the UK on on Echo, there was no you know guidelines before that, and that was a common complaint that we we heard from you know colleagues. And once they were in place, people followed them, and people said actually this was really helpful. And I very much think that that is exactly what's going to happen with the you know ESC guidelines. They will be implemented and people will say, hey, this is the reference point. Let's use this. And we actually have a document that we, we can look to. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, non-cardio-oncology colleagues of mine have already been talking about the guidelines, talking about cardio-oncology, which, you know, they wouldn't have been doing if the guidelines weren't there. So I think it's a tremendous uh, step forward for the field. Well, this is just such a tremendous opportunity for us to talk to you today. And we all just are in such debt to you for the efforts you put forward on this. Thank you. You've really set the course for the future of the field here. And we're excited to see how this uh, is implemented and then modified and built upon going forward. So So, thank you so much. Yeah. So is it okay if I tell people that I know you? (laughs) <laughs> we all is it okay if i tell people that yeah. i know you then <laughs> so i say i know Teresa, and you know so and i know alex too but you know he, he couldn't get on this call but yes no this is this is really a monumental uh marking spot for cardio oncology in fact we 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 are going to present at kikos in two weeks in, in Toronto, so so we hope that uh, all of you can join us in in Toronto, if not in person, at least virtually, because um, we can promise you that uh, we are going to present really key aspects of the of the guidelines. So, absolutely, we absolutely look forward to that. Absolutely. For more information about ICOS, you can go to ic-os.org where you'll find more information about all of our programs, including our weekly webinars, our board certification exam, and other resources that we know you'll find helpful. 
Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to hear from you soon.